Well, good morning once again, and welcome to the Christian Life Center. We are so glad that you're joining us today. Uh, if I have not had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Ben, and I get the opportunity to work here on staff. I also get the opportunity to share today, as you just saw, as we continue in our sub-series of Luke called Parables. And uh, I, for one, love stories. Like, I, I love to tell a good story. Um, I love to uh, hear a really good story. And I think stories are really important for us as a people because as we hear stories, we relate to one another through them, right? Like, stories are a huge part. I think that if you look at all of our, our culture, even our uh, kind of the shows that we watch, the movies that we see, and kind of uh, the episodes and things, like, if there's a really good story, there's something in that that we're drawn to. And my argument would be that Jesus was probably the greatest storyteller that ever existed, simply because the ones he told, the parables that he spoke of, we still speak about today. We, we still talk about and how it impacted a crowd of listeners as they listened to Jesus back 2,000 years ago, but also how those parables still impact us today. It's pretty amazing. And, and the story of what he did on the cross is something that will has an opportunity to impact every single person from every single different time, uh, time uh, every second of time through all eternity can impact somebody. And so I'm excited to share with you today as parables. We are going to be in Luke chapter 15. I'm pretty excited uh, to share with you that. Um, and, and to give you a little bit of a, a background on parables, I did this a couple weeks ago when I, when, I did, uh, when I shared. I'll probably do it again. But just to let you know kind of a, a little bit of information before we jump into this, parables were uh, something that Jesus taught with all the time, right? There was something that he used kind of in the moment to come up with a story that would illustrate a point and it would... Through that story, through that illustration, he would talk to us and explain to us what the kingdom of heaven was like. Uh, let me just read kind of through my bulletins. Uh, a parable was a small story with big implications, and Jesus often used parables as he taught. A parable was simply a made-up story, a hypothetical situation, if you will. In some of Jesus' parables, he would say the kingdom of heaven is like. And obviously, when he says that, it gives us a glimpse into what the kingdom of heaven was like. Because as he shared and as he taught, as the kingdom of God came, as he invaded this earth, things look different from his kingdom to the way that this world operates. And so whenever he said that, it would give us a glimpse into understanding what the kingdom of God was like, and it would help us understand how God views the world and how we should live in light of it. Sometimes he would explain his parables to the crowds or maybe to just the disciples, and sometimes he wouldn't. He, he would just kind of keep going, and he would say a parable and then maybe another parable. Uh, this chapter 15 is actually three different parables. We're only going to look at two of them this week, and then next week Christian will actually be sharing with you the third one. And and as we look at these parables, Jesus offers to us who we are, who God is, and to draw some conclusions about ourselves, the kingdom of God, and about God himself. In almost every single parable, there is somebody that represents God or a God-like figure and someone who represents us. And a parable really was to get the listeners to stop and think to pause and to reflect. And even in some of the parables, as Jesus spoke them, as he talked and, and spoke them out, these parables would have been kind of like plot twists in a movie, where just the thought of that or the notion of the uh, Samaritan or the notion of, uh, you know, leaving 99 to go to one, like just that idea could cause some emotions to stir within the listeners. And I think that Jesus did that for a reason. He did that for a purpose. 
It was something that you didn't see coming, like a plot twist in a movie. Um, it could cause shock to the, to the listeners, um, and uh, it gave an opportunity to react to this thought or that idea, to challenge their perspective. Um, and then as we go through this, there, there's kind of a few different questions that I hope to be able to answer as we look at this parable and as we dive into it. And for me, honestly, Luke chapter 15 is, is probably some of my favorite um, parables. In fact, I would say that Luke chapter 15 is probably, if Jesus had like a greatest hits CD, Luke 15, probably at least two of these parables would be in there, like the prodigal son, a lot of people know that one, and then the lost sheep. And, and the lost sheep for me, I feel like is pretty special because I think that this was a picture of how I came to know Christ. And I very much feel like I was that one lost sheep as we're going to look at this. And I feel like God left the 99 and came to pursue me. And as I got the opportunity years ago when I was in my college program, I got the opportunity to kind of travel and to share my testimony. And this was the verse that I used all the time because it just so perfectly summarized, I felt like what God did in pursuing me. And so today, I get ex I'm excited to share that. The questions that I hope that we can kind of answer today are, what does this parable teach about God and his kingdom? That's pretty obvious, as we kind of talked about that already. Um, number two, what does this answer? Like, wh what is this parable? What is, what is going on that it answers for us today? Another one is, what are the original hearers supposed to learn in that? And then lastly, what action does Jesus expect from me or from us as we look at this parable? So uh, I just want to go ahead and open up with a quick prayer, and then we are going to jump into this, and I hope that God challenges and encourages you today. So if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to be here, Lord. I, I thank you that whether we are watching online, Lord, whether we're in this room, whether we're in the parking lot, Lord, that this is a time that you have set aside for us to be able to hear from you. And Lord, as we dive into this chapter, as we look at these two uh, of these three parables in Luke 15, Lord God, I pray that you would just allow it to not be my words that are heard, but Father, you would speak to each and every single person. Lord, whatever it is that you desire for them to hear, that this would be an opportunity for them to hear. Lord, for those that maybe have never uh, accepted you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I, I pray that they would be open to that. Lord, that they would be able to respond to your calling and to your invitation to come and repent. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing and how you're moving and working. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, we are continuing in our parable series. And really, if you've been with us for over a year, or maybe this is your first time, to just let you know, our parable series is kind of a sub-series of the book of Luke. We've been working through Luke for over a year, um, and we're going to continue to do so as we get into the new year and beyond. Um, and really, it's been awesome, because as we've looked at this, the, the stated purpose why Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke was so that Theophilus, this Roman official, would have certainty of the things that he was taught. And I feel like as we've gone through this, that's this, the same goal and desire for us, that we would have an understanding and a certainty of who God is and what he came to do and to establish. And really what we looked at last week in chapter 14, as we kind of wrapped up last week's passage, chapter 14 was some really challenging verses. If you weren't here, it was basically the cost of being a disciple. And Jesus essentially says, hey, if you want to be my disciple, you have to give up everything. You have to hate your mother, your 
father, your sister, your brother, your, your niece, your nephew. He says you've got to basically hate them, and it's not that you need to hate them, but the idea is that Jesus should be your very top priority in life. Nothing should even come close to your desire in priorities to have Jesus as the number one position in your life. And so what's amazing as we kind of turn the corner from 14 to 15, it's almost like Jesus is, or, or Luke, as he writes this through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's almost like last week what we were talking about is that we need to empty ourselves of us. And then this week, it's almost as if, again, through the, the Holy Spirit's speaking and talking and, and encouraging Luke to write this, in verse 15, what we see is what we should be filling our lives with. So 14 is kind of emptying ourselves, and 15 is giving us a different picture of what God pursues, of what is important and what matters to him. And so we're going to jump into that, like I said, the greatest hits. Um, but I, I've got a question for you, okay? And I'm going to ask this, and I want you to be honest. We're in church, okay? Just want to remind you, uh, for those of you that are, like, watching online, you can be honest too. If you're in the parking lot, I want you to be honest there. But, like, how many of you... Lose stuff. Anybody? Lose stuff. How many of you lose things, okay? I see like half of you putting your hands up, but the reality is that all you probably should put your hands up, right? How many of you actually lose things? Like, how many of you, and normally we don't encourage you to do this, but if you want to today, we, we will encourage you for the next five minutes. If you want to point to the family member that loses things all the time, you're welcome to do that. Um, but how many of you just have a family member that constantly loses things? Anybody? There is one in every family. Like, if you are raising your hand high right now, it's because you are not that one, but you know who the one is in your family, right? So we lose stuff all the time. How about this? Let me, let me ask a few things that can cause a little bit of panic when you lose them. How many people have ever lost a wallet or a purse? Anybody? For any amount of time, like five minutes, if there was any panic in you, you lost it, okay? If there was ever like, oh no, what happened? You lost it, okay? So wallet or purse, okay, how about this? Um, how about a wedding ring? Anybody lost a wedding ring? Like, it, it doesn't mean that you didn't find it, but you just lost a wedding ring. Uh, a few less hands, either people aren't being honest or they're just just ashamed to admit it. Um, how about this? Um, cell phone, remember, if you want to, you can raise your hand. Cell phone, that one creates a little bit of panic, right? Like, and then as you are separated, you're like, why do I have this separation anxiety? And then you're like, this is unhealthy. And then you find it, and you're like, oh, well, right? Like, that's just generally how it works for me. How about this one, okay? How many of you have ever lost a child? Yeah, okay, okay. Thank you. There's like three people that were honest, okay? Here's, here's what I've been told, okay? If you're in here and you're thinking, how could somebody lose a child? Well, the answer to that is that you clearly don't have any children, all right? <laughs> children are kind of like ninjas. No matter how good of an eye you keep on them, they will just somehow quietly sneak away, all right? That's what I've been informed. So we all lose things, right? It's, it's just kind of a part of life. Now, some of us maybe are a little bit more prone to losing things more often, and some of us maybe feel like we're a bit more organized and we don't lose things as much. But most of us, or all of us, have experienced what it's like to lose something and to be concerned about it. And then most of us have probably experienced the, the other side of that, where you finally found something and the relief and the joy and the, like, 
huh, the, this feeling that comes over you, but also how maddening it is to lose something and to not be able to recover it, right? And, and I know that we all lose things um, in part because I've had many conversations about m- to, with many of you regarding a church event and something has gone missing or something has l- been lost. And I know that to be true because up here with me, this is actually the church is lost and found, all right? <laughs> So this actually proves my point on top of having the numerous conversations that I've had. And I thought today it might be a little bit fun to go through our lost and found. Is, is that okay? Now, now, here's the deal, okay? As I go through this, I was thinking in my mind initially that I was going to go, hey, if it's yours, just raise a hand. I'll throw it up there. But then I thought, we should not do that, okay? I very much could make this go from a message to a game show really quickly. Like, as a recovering youth pastor, I've got at least four different games that would make you getting your stuff back a lot of fun for the rest of us. So, so if, you, if this is any of yours, after service, you can just go into the lobby, you can pick out your stuff, and, and you don't have to say that it's yours now. So we're going to look at this, and um, really I think that this lost and found, unless you have lost something, Many of us don't put a second thought into the idea of a lost and found, right? In fact, as we go through this, the majority of you are probably going to go, that has no value and no significance to me. Why? Because it doesn't belong to you. It's not yours, and so therefore, as you look at it, eh, yeah, it's just another pair of glasses, or it's another piece of jewelry, or another item of clothing. Like, as you go through this, most of this will have no value or significance to you. Unless you are the one that has bought something, that owns something, or created something that is lost and found in this box. So things change, the value of things change drastically when you have created, when you've bought, or when you own something, and it's yours, and you've lost it. Then all of a sudden, there's a ton of value to it. So as we look in this, there's, there's a couple different things, you know, right off the bat. There's always articles of clothing. This is like a scarf. I'm not sure how long that's been in there, because it's we're just kind of coming out of uh, the summer. There's actually, here's a second scarf, so there's, there's two there. Um, how about this? There's a, an article of clothing from the University of Vermont. That, that's a pretty far drive away. There's some, some bags of stuff. This, okay, so a, a coffee mug or some type of vessel to hold presumably coffee or to keep things cold. I do want to say that this church is incredibly generous, and I just want to say thank you. Most of the vessels that I actually, in my household, put coffee into, and my wife is the primary coffee drinker, most of those have been gifts to us, and I just want to say thank you. Now, I'm a little bit confused why they were in the lost and found, and they were used, but I do want to say thank you so much. This one might even eventually make its way to the Dieterly household as well, but we'll, we'll find out. So, so there's that. There's, uh, guys, uh, there's some things in here like you would expect, like sunglasses. There's actually like four pair, five pair. Um, yeah, there's even a sixth pair over here. And then what we have is some, some eyeglasses. This is another big one. We've got three pair of those. Um, even maybe another one somewhere in here. And then, guys, I'll be honest. Um, I'm not even sure what this is. Um, 
my first thought was that I wasn't sure if this was appropriate for church. Like, I got really scared to touch it, and but I, I think maybe it's something for hair. I'm praying. Um, if somebody knows what that is afterwards, please tell me, because I have no clue what that thing is. Um, and then I was really surprised. Like, this, everybody here will find actually um, value to. Like, I, I'm really surprised. I don't know how it got here, but there is actually a 1-6 scale military posable action figure. I, I must have left it up here last week. So there's, there's definitely value in that. But uh, I was surprised by that. But as we look through this, honestly, for most of us, this is just insignificant stuff. But the truth is, is that if you own this, if this is yours, let's use this pair of eyeglasses as an example. What goes into getting a pair of eyeglasses? There's a lot that goes into it, right? Like, usually there's going to a doctor to get your eyes looked at, to get checked up on. Then there's a prescription that goes with that. There's kind of dealing with the insurance company to purchase it. There's a lot of money that goes into purchasing that. So to the person that this belongs to, this is significant. This holds a lot of value. This represents a lot of time and resources to get these. To most of us in, in this room, again, we're going, not a big deal, not my glasses. Maybe if they're your prescription, you might be like, oh, oh, oh let me see those. Like, maybe, but for most of us, we're going, doesn't really matter. Again, as we look at things like the, the hoodie, we're going, dude, I don't even know if I know anybody that went to the uni University of Vermont. We look at kind of maybe an old and beat up uh, hoodie or sweater, but the reality is that for somebody, this could hold significant meaning. Maybe a sibling or a, a son or a daughter attends a school. Maybe it was a trip that they went to as they were looking at different schools and, and they got excited seeing what Vermont had and it brings back memories. So there would be significant value to the person that this belongs to. Maybe not to us, but to them. There's usually uh, jewelry, which there probably is some if I, if I dig deep enough, but jewelry is another piece that maybe for us, we see <laughs> something, like obviously if there's value to it, like if it's real gold, then we're going, hmm, that's, that's interesting. But if something is just kind of a, a lost earring, most of us are going to go, that's insignificant. It doesn't have any value. But to the person that owns it, there could be huge significance and importance, excuse me. And I think that as we talk about Luke chapter 15, this is exactly, kind of this lost and found box is exactly what is happening with the Pharisees and the, and the scribes at the time when Jesus tells this parable. And the, two of these parables, all three of these parables, I should say, are in response to the Pharisees and the scribes, the teachers of the law, grumbling and mumbling, being upset that Jesus was actually spending time with sinners and tax collectors. See, because the way that it worked, if you were a Pharisee or you were a scribe, you would have nothing to do with sinners. You would keep this kind of three degrees of separation between you and them. Like, you wouldn't even associate with somebody who associated with sinners. But as Jesus comes onto the scene, he begins to show and to reveal what the kingdom of God is like. He starts to spend time and to hang out with these sinners and these tax collectors. And the religious people of the day are amazed and concerned. And Jesus is teaching a completely different set of values. He is showing what the kingdom of heaven is actually like. And so we're going to kind of jump into this and, and talk about this. The Pharisees looked at the crowds of sinners listening to Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God and thought that there was no one in, of value in those crowds. There was only sinners. 
But Jesus was about to teach a crucial and incredibly important lesson on the kingdom of God and the character of the Father. And so we're going to jump into this, and, and what I want to do is uh, I'm going to read kind of the first three verses, and then because these parables are so similar, I'm going to actually try and do both parables kind of at once. So I'll read to you, for example, I think the next uh, verse that we're going to read in just a little bit will be, uh, it'll be Luke verse 4, but I also want to read Luke 15, 8 as well, because they're similar stories, and we're going to kind of talk through them. So this is what it says. It says, Luke 15, verses 1 through 3, you can follow along if you'd like on the screen, on your app, on your Bible, whatever you'd like to do. It says, Now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes, again, the scribes were the teachers of the Lord, grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So here we have four identified groups of people, right? So we have tax collectors and sinners, and then we have the Pharisees and scribes. Presumably also the disciples are in there somewhere because the disciples were following Jesus, but they're not specifically mentioned. So what I want to do is kind of break these into two categories of going, we have the religious folk who are the Pharisees and scribes, the teachers of the law, and then we also have the non-religious people. These are the sinners and the tax collectors. Most of us probably have a decent understanding of what sinner means. It's someone that simply missed the marks. Uh, It's someone that misses the mark. It's someone that kind of steps out of a boundary and and doesn't live the way that God's word or his law had established for people to to live. So these people are, are lost in sin. They're most likely they're not Jewish. They don't go to the synagogue, which was the local church. They don't follow the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, where, where God had given his law to the Israelites and to the Jewish community. They're simply living their life absent of the divine creator. And, and what's interesting is that uh, maybe they have intentionally kind of walked away from God. They don't want to kind of be with him or around him. But what actually this verse is kind of saying is that this was the crowd that was gathering around to hear Jesus. So most likely, they were at least open to hearing his teaching, maybe curious about what it meant and what it looked like. Again, this was a completely different system of values that was being introduced. This idea of religion for them was this burdensome thing that they had to carry, and just hopefully they did everything right, because on top of the rules that God had given, the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, had added rules upon rules upon rules upon rules to where it was just this massive, incredible burden. So these sinners and tax collectors, I do think that it's interesting, as you read this, tax collectors were so despised that they were in their own category. Like, even Luke, as he writes this, he could have just said there were sinners, but he wants you to know that there was tax collectors. Tax collectors were despised by the people that were in Jerusalem. Because what had happened was this, is that basically as Rome comes in, they conquer Jerusalem and Israel, and they're now under Roman rule. So Rome comes in and they establish, okay, you're going to have to pay taxes. Roman citizens would not have to pay taxes. And what would happen was a Roman citizen would actually bid out an area to their government saying, I can collect X amount of dollars in this area. If they won that bid, then that Roman citizen would hire people in that area. So the countrymen of the people that were about to collect taxes, they were the ones that would be responsible to gather all of their taxes. This means that they are collecting from their friends, 
their neighbors, the kids that they went to school with. Like, they're collecting from people that they know. This isn't like some person far off, long away. This is like Joe down the street. Like, to put it in, like, a modern-day perspective, let's just say Canada decides to invade the United States, okay? We're going with a real peaceable one, because I don't think Canada, everybody's there is super nice. They're not actually going to invade the U.S., all right? I, that's just at least my, my idea. But if Canada, like, overtakes the United States, imagine that Canada sets up this, this tax that we have to do, and what they do is they actually get people from this church, from your small group, to collect the taxes. That would create some, some emotion in you, right? Like, that, man, you thought these people loved Jesus. You thought that they loved God. Here they are working for the, the occupying world power. Like, what are you doing? I thought you loved Jesus. Now you're telling me I owe you money? And, and what happened was is that tax collectors, anything that they collected above what was required, they would get to keep. So these tax collectors basically became rich off of taking from their neighbors. So they were crooks. They were robbers because they became rich off the work of their neighbors. So there was this despised hatred towards tax collectors and sinners. But the tax collectors didn't mind all that much because they were rich. The only friends they really had was their other rich tax collector friends. But it's interesting that Jesus, one of the 12 disciples, Matthew, was a tax collector. Jesus calls him. He's showing and revealing that Jesus is taking the outcast. And then we see that as they're gathering around, tax collectors and sinners were hearing and wanting to hear what Jesus was about to say. And then again, the other group is the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the teachers of the law. The Pharisees were basically the pastors of their time. So here we have kind of the religious elite, and they are looking down on Jesus because he is spending time with sinners. If you've been with us through any amount of time through the Luke series, what you've seen is that Jesus is kind of going to war with religion. And what that means is that with these Pharisees, these Sadducees, the rulers of the synagogue, many times they were the opposition to what Jesus was trying to show and reveal. They were so set in their ways, not just the law that God had given, but the law that they added to, that they added to, that they added to. They were so stuck on that that they could not hear the true Messiah saying that the kingdom of heaven is actually like this. What should have brought life for them, they resisted. Their pride and their arrogance said, no, 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 that's not the way to do it. In order to be righteous, you need to stay away from sinners and tax collectors. You should have nothing to do with that. But Jesus is flipping the script. He's changing that and saying, no, the kingdom of heaven is not like what you think or what you perceive. The kingdom of heaven is like this parable. And then he goes into this parable. I will say this, one, one other thought as I, right before we get into the parable. It is interesting that in the end of chapter 14, verse 35, um, Jesus says as he's teaching, gives this tough teaching about, you know, basically the cost of discipleship. He says, whoever has ears, let him hear. And then in 15.1, we see now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, or were all drawing near to hear him. They are literally doing the exact thing that Jesus just told everyone to do, to draw near, to hear. He, he who has ears, let him hear. They're doing that. And the Pharisees and scribes are going, you are doing it all wrong. You, have, you are missing it. 
So as, as, they are, as Jesus is talking, imagine, play this out in your mind what this looks like. For, for those that are sinners, the tax collectors, the sinners, those that are far off from, from Christ, as Jesus begins to teach and talk about what the kingdom of heaven is like, there is this incredible excitement within them. Because now all of a sudden the burden that has been laid on them, that if they want to be right before the one true God, they have to do X, Y, Z, and then all of these other things that weren't listed in the Torah, they have to do all of these things. But now there's a new teacher who's doing miraculous works, and he is changing all of that. There is an excitement there as they hear this. It's liberating. It's freeing. It's, for them, they're going, ah, oh, this is something that I want to be a part of. But the Pharisees are seeing this as an attack on their elite system that they have. They are closed off to this idea uh, that a true God would actually spend time with sinners and tax collectors. And so they think that righteousness before God demands staying away from the lost, the broken, the sinners and tax collectors. But Jesus had been teaching and modeling a different way. The way that the kingdom of heaven is actually like. So Jesus responds to the muttering of the religious leaders by telling three made-up stories or parables. And so here we go. I'm going to jump in. We're going to read 15 verse 4 and then also 15 verse 8. So 15 4 says this. It says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and to go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So here, Jesus, in, in, in an agriculture area where they're used to uh, pastoral care, such as shepherding, Jesus uses an illustration that they can understand. Now, it is interesting to point out that shepherds weren't kind of the highest, um, like, looked at. They, they weren't really people that you aspired to be. A shepherd wasn't really a job that you aimed for. It was more like a job that you kind of fell into. Because think about it. As you're working with sheep, you're out in the field with the sheep. Sheep are kind of the most pathetic animals that ever existed because they have no means of defense whatsoever from predators, right? Like, they, they have wool that grows, and they, they have a bath. That's about it. Like, they are pretty pathetic animals. So in order for a good shepherd to keep his flock, and, and here we see 100 sheep, which was probably a moderate-sized flock. A flock could be anywhere between 20 to 200 sheep. And so 100 is just kind of a moderate means. To the tax collectors there, they could probably buy 100 sheep without even thinking about it. To them, they're going, it's insignificant, maybe doesn't mean much. But Jesus is illustrating a point here again. And so Jesus is talking in an agricultural, pastoral area that they would understand the significance of what it meant to be a shepherd, meaning the shepherd was away from people. They were kind of the weirdos of that time because they didn't really have social skills. Like, think about it. The people they hung out with were sheep, right? Like, before the idea of, like, the cat lady, there was probably sheep people, right? Like... Sheep people, shepherds, they were just kind of the strange, bizarre ones where they just kind of kept to themselves because they didn't have much interaction. And on top of that, how often did they shower? How often did they bathe? Like if they're just out with their flock, spending nights with them, they're out all the time. Have you ever been to a petting zoo that smelled good? Probably not. I have never been to one that smelled good. Think about that all the time. So this shepherd was probably despised. He's probably looked down upon. So even as Jesus mentions a shepherd, these religious elite, and maybe even the sinners that are there, and these rich tax collectors would go, ah, oh, I, I wouldn't want to associate myself with them. 
And then Jesus also tells another story. This is in 15.8. It says this. It says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And so what Jesus is doing is talking about what a good shepherd or what a woman would do if she lost a coin. Now, the coin here is also kind of a moderate means, if you will. So the way that this is works, and this is what it's probably referring to, is that when a woman would be sold for marriage, when a dowry was paid to a, to a father of the bride, that father would take that money and set that money aside. He was actually to retain that money and keep it so that if his daughter, the bride, would ever be divorced or widowed, that she would have some funds that she could kind of lean into. So the, it, this dowry was not just something that he could just spend the money, he's got all that he wants, but it was supposed to be an investment into his daughter's life. And many times what would happen is that they would actually create a circle, like a, basically a, a bracelet of coins that were known as uh, denarius. Let me see if I've got that right. Uh, yeah, a denarius. And basically one denarius equaled an average laborer's daily wage. So here there's 10 coins that probably make up this wedding dowry that at first glance maybe is significant, but it's just kind of a modest means. Maybe there's some sentimental value to it. Maybe there's a care and a concern because this is important. If something was to happen to her husband, she's got to rely on this. And so it is interesting that as we look at this, Jesus chooses to identify himself in these two parables, first as a shepherd, and then interestingly, as a woman. What's so crazy is that when you look at Scripture, whenever God is referred to, he's always referred to in the masculine pronoun. Now, here's the reality. God is not male or female. God is God. If you want to make your brain hurt, try and figure this out, okay? Like, God is not male or female, but mankind, male and female, is created in the image and the likeness of God. Like, like I said, if you want to make your brain hurt, like, what does that fully mean? The two become one, and in that oneness, that is what God is like. It's crazy to kind of understand. But here, what Jesus does is he likens the father to a shepherd, again an outcast, and also to a woman who in that time and in that culture was not high, high, highly regarded. These were two groups of people that were outcasts that you could probably argue were rejects, that were important. They couldn't really actually give a testimony in court because they were unreliable. And so what Jesus actually is doing here by identifying and placing God in the story as a shepherd and as a woman, what I truly believe that he is doing is he is bringing value to those that culture, society, those that the, the Pharisees and scribes actually disregard as unimportant. Jesus is bringing actual value to. He's not going, you know what, the rules of your world say that women aren't important, that say that shepherds aren't important, that tax collectors are less than human. No, no, no. In my kingdom things are a lot different. Who you dislike or who you want nothing to do with, I want them on my team. Jesus is bringing value to these people, to these rejected people, to the outcasts. 
again, the excitement that this would stir up within those that are hearing this that, that aren't necessarily Jews that are going, I mean, God cares for me, the outcast? And the answer to that is yes. Today, I, under, I understand and I, I recognize that most likely within this room, online, in the parking lot, there's probably two, two different groups of people that I'm referring to, that I'm speaking to today. There's probably a non-religious group that is here just being polite, and maybe there's a group that is, is here that you would consider yourself religious. Maybe you wouldn't say religious, maybe you'd say a believer. There's probably two different groups here. And what we see, and, and I know that I used, that was supposed to be a cue for the, just let me speak to the worship team. That is not the cue worship team. That's a later cue. I just got ahead of myself and I said that there. Some inside, behind the scenes stuff. That is not the cue. I've still got time, um, I think. My timer says 40 minutes and it didn't start counting down yet, so I still got 40 minutes as far as I'm concerned. I'm just kidding. They're probably going to fix that now. Watch. Um, so Jesus here is bringing value to what society, what culture has said has no value. And Jesus chooses to, to the outcast. And what's interesting here is that as we look at this, the 99 sheep illustration, Jesus is kind of saying it, a good shepherd would go search for the one. And there is some debate about this parable. Re again, remember, this is a made-up story. This isn't like a real thing. But as you read different commentaries, some commentaries kind of point out saying, obviously Jesus left the 99 in the care of someone else. Because any good shepherd would do that. You wouldn't neglect the 99 and not care for them just to search for the one. Because to do that, that would actually be pretty reckless and careless. That would maybe signify that you're a bad shepherd. But as I read through this and as I study this, to be honest, it looks as simple as what it says in Scripture. Again, let me read it. It says, If he has lost one of them, does he not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? That word, open country, there translates into a couple different words in English. It translates into desert or deserts. It translates into desolate. translates to open pasture. translates into secluded or unpopulated. And the largest translation it translates to is the wilderness. And again, if Jesus is telling a parable, it's possible that this is one of those plot twists that Jesus is going, no, 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 you don't understand. The value of that one is so great to me that I would risk the 99 to find the one. Again, Jesus is changing the script. He's changing the value of society. He's changing the way that the religious look at the non-religious. He's going, no, 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 no. I care less about the 99 in that moment than I do for the one. I think that this is so critical for us as a church to understand. That Jesus would leave the 99 in the open country. You can translate that whatever way you want. If you want to believe that Jesus put a, another shepherd or another person there, great. As I look at it, I've experienced it. I feel like Jesus left the 99 to seek me, the one. And if you are here today and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, what I want you to hear is that Jesus is searching for you that he loves you, that he cares for you. You may feel like you are a reject, that you're an outcast, that you don't fit in society. And Jesus is saying that his kingdom is for you, that his kingdom is for the outcast, that he came for you, that there is nothing you could do that would make you undesirable before the Father. 
Man, this message is such a beautiful, beautiful understanding of who God is, of who his character and what his nature is, that he would leave the 99 to find the one. Continuing on with this, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Luke 15, 5 and 6, and then Luke 15, 9. It says this. Uh, actually, before I get to that, one of the things that I wrote down is uh, the shepherd isn't focused on what is found, but what is lost. And I thought of an illustration. Maybe this is a good one. Maybe it's not. Um, but imagine you had five different credit cards, right? So you've got like, I don't know, whatever five there are. You've got a MasterCard. You've got a Visa. You've got American Express. Um, people still use those? Anyway, um, you've got whatever. You've got five different credit cards. If you were to lose one of those credit cards, would you go, eh, it's no big deal. I still got four left. No, no, no. Your time, your attention, your focus would be on that one lost credit card. You would take steps and you would make action to probably turn it off or to call and to cancel that card. You would make steps to find it. You would look for it wherever you could. You would retrace your steps because you don't want somebody taking your card and kind of maxing it out, right? Like you would put work into finding that one lost card. You would not go, ah, it's okay, I've got four more, I'll just use one of those. No, no, no. It's not about having other cards in that moment. It's about finding what is lost. And that is what Jesus is saying. In this moment, it's not about the 99 that don't need repentance, that didn't ask for forgiveness. It's not about them. It's about seeking the one. That is what he's illustrating, going, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, you guys miss it. You don't even associate with those that you would consider sinners, but you're missing what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. The kingdom of God is like a woman who has 10 coins. She still has nine, but she's lost one. She's putting time, energy, and attention onto finding that one lost coin. And obviously, the, the relation to us is the same thing. Jesus is, we in this story are the lost sheep or the lost coin. We are what is lost. Whether you currently are or you one, at one point were, you are what was lost and Christ cared for you. He came to seek, to find, and to save that, that which is lost. And that is you and me. His desire was to seek, to find, and to save that which was lost. Verse 15, uh, or chapter 15, 5 and 6, it says, And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then verse 9, uh, kind of going back to uh, this woman with the coin. Verse 9 says, And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. I have found the coin that I had lost. It's interesting because, again, maybe to the neighbors, this coin or the sheep doesn't have all that much significance. But there is such a joy that it, it is an exuberant celebration, the fact that what was lost is now found almost this can't contain it even if if he wanted to the father is so emotionally excited that he celebrates telling everyone around i think even that the idea of god being emotional is probably a strange thought for us right because we probably think of god as more stoic right sitting on the throne before the angels that are 
saying, holy, 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 and he's just taking it in like, yep, I am. Uh, Like, whatever you picture him as, we probably don't think of him as emotional, but this passage shares that he's emotional, that there is joy, there, there is celebration about the one lost that was found. Again, the spiritual application is that Jesus goes to great length to seek, find, and to save that which is lost. Jesus came to save us as lost sinners from our own self and sin. This was the very reason why he came. As we look at this parable, as we go through Luke, we're we're working our way to Luke 19, where ultimately Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. But in, in 1910, Jesus said that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This was his purpose. This is why he came. This was not for the religious elite. It wasn't so that they could have a pat on the back and feel good. Jesus was going, no, no, no. I came for the outcast. I came for the the lowly. I came for those that society says isn't worth it. I came for those. I came with compassion and care. And again, as we've looked through Luke, we've seen this. He heals and shows compassion to to a woman who's bent over and everybody else kind of ignores her, but Jesus sees her and responds in compassion. Jesus is healing. He had time for anyone. As we read through scripture, while he was on his way to something else, he would respond in a miracle. He made time. Why? Because he came for the broken. He came for the lost. That was his purpose and why he was here. Sinners were of no value to the Pharisees, but to God they are his much-loved children. And again, there's nothing outside of, uh, there's nothing that you could do that would remove you from God's desire to love and to care for you, to seek and to find you. At the heart of the gospel is God's reaching out to the sinner and making provision for their forgiveness. This is what we as a church need to be about. This is what we are called to, that we would partner with God in seeking the lost so that they can find him. This parable is so critical because we see God's heart, that he would not have one parish, that he would leave the 99 in open country to find the one lost sheep. And let me read these last scripture verses with you. Luke 15, 7, and then Luke 15, 10, it says this. And this is really a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. Seven, or 15, 7 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more, a more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And fifteen ten says this, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents talking to the believers, to the disciples, if you identify as a Christian, do you understand what this verse means? And this may sound a little bit harsh, and I don't mean it to be harsh, because God definitely cares for you. It's not like you become one of the 99, and then he stops loving you and caring for you. No, he still continues to love and care for you. But when we understand what this verse is saying is that Jesus would leave us to seek, to find, and to save that which is lost. So when I read this, what I read is that it's not about us. If you identify as a Christian, as you identify as a believer, then your heart and your desire should be what the heart of God is for. Seeking, finding, and saving the lost. 
It's not about you. One of the things that I hate as a pastor is seeing people fall into this kind of consumerism Christianity where it's about what they can get and what they want and what they do and about the groups that they form. It's not about going out and seeking, finding, and saving the lost. It's God who does the work, but we get to partner with him. So as a church, I would say that right now in this season, it is the most critical time that we would live into the very heart of God. Right now, without a senior leader, right now where there seems to, just whenever there's a a senior leader that transitions, there seems to be a leadership vacuum and everybody begins to think about what we should be about and do, all from a good place. But in that vacuum, what should we be about? Seeking, finding, and saving that which is lost. This is what we as a church need to be about. This is it right here. I know that I have a natural bent more towards evangelism, but I feel like this is the only thing that we need to be about. Again, when we do things such as movie nights, man, our desire is that those that are lost would come. Do I hope that you enjoy a movie and that you have fun as well? Yes, absolutely. But that is secondary to the first, first desire. When we do things like the Fall Fest, do we want you to have a good time, for you to enjoy it, for you, the 99, to be blessed by it? Of course we do. But the reason we do it is for the one. Why? Because the Father was about the one. All of these things, coffee on Sunday mornings, the reason we do that is not just so that you can get your coffee fix. I hope that you can. But it's for the one. Everything that we do as a church, as believers, Man, for me, comes back to this, this urgency to, to be about the one. I think that this is critical. We are called to action because we appreciate just how much heaven wants us to search for those who are lost. Two things that I wanted to give to you kind of as an application, if you are looking to, to become more intentional in your pursuit of the lost, to, um, dare I use the E word that we say in church, to be able to evangelize. Ooh, so scary. Um, like two kind of action steps that I wanted to give, encourage you to do is that if you want to pursue that, but you're going, I have no idea how. There's two things that I want to encourage you to do. Number one, there's a book called The Starfish Movement by Dan Greider. As a staff, we went through this a few, few months ago. It's a, it's a great book that maybe even challenges your perspective on what evangelism looks like. It, it's from that book that really the, the language of me saying that it's about having spiritual conversations, really that book helped shape that, that conversation and the way that I communicate about it. It's about finding those that would be open to the gospel and just being able to build a relationship and hopefully in time there would be some type of a spiritual conversation, but the goal is to not sell a timeshare. The goal is to have a conversation, to have a relationship that ultimately leads to the ability to have a spiritual conversation. So I would encourage you to check out that book. If you have questions about it, I would be happy to answer that. You can just contact the church. The other thing that I would mention and just bring up is that on Thursday mornings, some of you are aware of this, that last, uh, gosh, I don't even know, fall, summer, I don't even remember what time. It was actually, it was in I think it ended in April of this past year, we did what we called the summit. It was kind of this idea was that we need to talk about as we work through the starfish movement as a staff, there was also this desire to create a disciple making network kind of within our church. 
And so we had a summit where it was a big event where a lot of people came out to. And then we kind of had this training where uh, it just naturally this is how it works. A few people fell off. And then that training kind of concluded. And then we continued to meet on Thursdays. Now there's a small group of people that meet every single Thursday. It rotates both morning and night to hopefully facilitate more ability for people to be there. And really what this group is about is about accountability. This group gets together to see how you're doing, but also to say, how is your spiritual conversations going? Have you been able to build any relationship with anybody? Have you been able to talk to anybody about X, Y, and Z? There's homework involved in it. And we are in a process right now where we're probably going to relaunch and re-kind of figure out what that looks like. We've got kind of a, a picture of the direction that we're heading. And I would encourage you that if you want to be a little bit more intentional in your desire to disciple to speak about Christ, to, to witness, to find the lost, then I would encourage you to contact either the church and I can get you in contact, or if you know Scott DeHart, Scott DeHart graciously kind of leads that on Thursday mornings. I'd be happy to give you information as well. But as we relaunch, if you're going, man, I want to do something, here's two great action steps that you can take. Read that book and ab absorb it. Be about it. And then the other thing is that you can kind of connect into uh, this discipleship journey. One of the last things that I'll say, and if the worship team wants to kind of come on up, or if that's just Jen, if you want to come up. One of the last things that I'll say is verse 10, I find amazing. Again, this kind of speaks to the emotion that God has. Like in verse 10 of, of chapter 15, it says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And the verbiage here is so fascinating to me because it says there is joy before the angels of God. What that means is that it is God who is joyful in front of the angels. We may look at that and just kind of go, oh, okay, well, that means that the angels are celebrating and God's there too. No, no, no. God is expressing joy and happiness over one that repented in front of the angels. Man, that is something to be exciting. That is something to be excited about, that God cares so much for the one that he is filled with emotion, that he is filled with joy and compassion because his son came to seek, to find, and to save that which is lost. And today, I recognize that we are, I am probably speaking to two different groups here. There's probably the religious group. And again, you probably wouldn't label yourself as religious. And if that's the case, great, man. What I would hope is that we would label ourselves as disciples of Jesus Christ because there's, there's a lot deeper commitment in being a disciple than just being religious or just being a Christian. But if you identify as, as a Christian, as a believer, as a disciple, my question is, where are you? Where are you? Are you more like the... The religious where you want nothing to do with sinners, that maybe you just kind of go to your small group and you go to church and you just kind of hang in your Christian bubble? Or are you actively trying to partner with God to seek to find and to save that which is lost? Are you reaching out to neighbors, to coworkers, to friends? And again, not about selling a timeshare, but just building a relationship so that hopefully a spiritual conversation can exist. Where are you if you are in that religious category? And then the other part is that if you were in that non-religious category, where are you? I think that God is, is calling out to you. He left the 99 to find the one. This was illustrating a point that he was making going, I came for the one. 
the one you despise, the one that you think is, is worthless, I came for that one. Again, I want him on my team. Man, if you are in here, God delights. He is overjoyed when a sinner, when someone who is broken, when someone who is lost returns to him. And today I want to give you that opportunity to just accept his invitation. And like I said, as I, as I had the opportunity to travel and, and speak, this is my testimony. I was the one that chose to walk away from God. I chose to abandon everything that I knew to be true. Yet he sought me until I found him. And God is offering the same invitation to you. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be emotional. I just can't get, help but get excited for what God has done in my life. I feel like I am a testimony of this scripture. I don't deserve to be here. Yet when God saw me, he said, you may feel like an outcast, but I've got so much greater in store for you. The same is true of you. You may feel like you don't belong. You may feel like a misfit. You may feel like you're broken, but God has something so much greater that you could probably never even fathom. And it all starts by simply accepting his invitation to be Lord and Savior. And so today what I want to do is that I just want to encourage you to, in your own words, be able to, if that be your desire, to ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. In just a moment, what I'm going to ask you to do is to bow your head. You can close your eyes if you want to. You don't have to. I would just ask that you just don't be looking around. This is kind of a sacred time where I think that God wants to speak to you individually. And I feel like this prayer is not just for those that want to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. This prayer is also for those of us that are righteous, that have sin to confess, which is all of us. Why? Because God's response to us asking for forgiveness is joy. It's not just for the lost. Yes, it's for the lost, but we also get the benefit in that. So if you want to make God happy and joyful today, then you get the opportunity to confess whatever it is that you've missed. The sin where you've just... Ah, did it again. And it's not from anger. It's not from disappointment. But God is eagerly waiting to celebrate your repentance. So I would just ask everyone in this room to just simply bow your head. Is, I don't want to give you the exact words today. I just want to kind of give you prompts and let you speak this out however you want to. I want this to be a time and a moment that is not about me and the words that I say, but it's about you and the words that you speak to your Heavenly Father who loves you, who left the 99 for you. So I'm going to give you a prompt. You can say those words. If it, maybe for you this is a little uncomfortable. Maybe you've never done this before. That's okay. If you mean it, God sees your heart and he knows and he understands. I would say for anybody that is online or in, in the parking lot as well, the same applies to you. I'd ask you to just simply bow your head. Don't worry, nothing visually is going to be happening. You can just listen to my words. But let this be a moment wherever you're at. If you're driving in your car, I would say pull over. Man, this is big enough that God wants to do something right now. We get this opportunity. Both for us that don't know Christ as Lord and Savior and for us that, of us that do, we get this moment to confess, to speak to our loving Father, our good shepherd who searches for us. And so 
as I kind of give you the prompt, you are welcome to, to maybe quietly say this to yourself. Or if you want to, you can just kind of simply pray this in your mind. If you don't want to speak it out, that's okay. But I just want to give you some prompts for you to speak to God. I'm going to say the prompt and I'm going to just give some time for you to speak. So I would say in your own words right now, if you would confess your wrongdoing and your pride. Confess the areas of sin where you have missed the mark. If you would right now admit that you can't be good enough, that you are not enough, you can't be good enough on your own, that you understand the need that you have for Christ as Lord. Next, I would ask you to ask God to come into your life, to become your Lord and Savior, and to teach you what it means to be a disciple of him. Next, I would say take a moment to thank God for his death on the cross that made a way for us to be in right relationship. Next, I would say thank him that he didn't just simply die on a cross, but that he rose again to new life. And now because of that, we too can experience true life. The last thing that I would say is ask that you would learn to put your trust in God and to grow in a knowledge of who he is. Father, I thank you so much for this day. Lord, I am so amazed that you leave the 99 to find the one. Father, that you reveal your very heart, the mission and the purpose of why you came. You came so that the lost could be found. And Father, I celebrate those that right now step from death into eternity. Lord, that spiritually step from death into eternity with you. Lord, I pray that you would just do a work that only you can do, that your spirit would move in a way that only you could move. Lord, for those that are accepting you as Lord and Savior as the first time, Lord, I pray that you would make yourself real to them. Lord, for those of us that are just confessing, Lord, where we've missed it, Lord, I thank you that you celebrate in heaven when we confess. Lord, you are a good God. You are so good. For those that maybe don't even understand that yet, Lord, I pray that you would just allow them to see who you are, to see your character. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you that we get the opportunity to worship you, that we get one final song, Lord, where we can just declare your goodness. Lord, I thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. One last thing that I would ask you before we, we end in our final song, and this one requires a little bit more boldness. If you maybe for the very first time today accepted Christ maybe as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're rededicating your life, we would love to know that. Not because we're going to do anything weird or sell your information, just because we want to be able to support you. So I would ask that you would connect with us on some level. You can do that through the Connect card if you're online. You can just hit that connect, uh, connection card. If you're in person or in the driving, you can go to clcfamily.church connection and just let us know in there. 
If you're in person, would prefer paper form. We have that in the lobby as well as outside in, in the kids zone. Uh, uh, the kids zone entrance area you can stop there but I would ask that you if you made that decision if you made that commitment today to let us know to talk to us I would love to follow up with you personally and just see what God is doing and how he's moving and working because what I think is so incredible is story after story after story of how God found the one and while all of us have a story our stories are all different and it's amazing how God has moved and worked in our lives. The last song that we're going to do today is, is called Reckless Love. And I think it so beautifully captures really what we've been talking about. The love that the Father has that he would leave the 99 in open country to pursue the one lost. And so this morning as we kind of close out, I'll, we'll do a benediction in just a moment. But would you stand and would you sing this song with us? Not just as a song, but as a declaration of God's goodness because he left the 99 for the one.
prayer for you this week is that your heart would mimic the very heart of God, that you would partner with him in pursuing the lost and the hurting. My, my desire is that you would, through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus did, go to great length to seek and to find and to save that which is lost. God does the work, but we get the opportunity to partner with him. Thank you so much for joining us today. If we can serve you in any way, please let us know. Contact us. You can email us at info at clcfamily.church. You can call or text us at 610-869-2140. If you did respond to that gospel invitation for the very first time or rededication, I would love to follow up with you if that would be something that you could just communicate with us. And in closing, I just want to read to you over you 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 and 13. It says this, it says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Amen. Would you have a great week? We hope to see you back next week. Thanks, everyone. Coming out.
Pour out our praise. We pour. 